Today's episode has been such a fantastic conversation. Um, I am speaking with Asma Nafis. Asma, I need to use my fingers actually. Asma is a deputy director um, of a commissioning support unit in the NHS. She is a, a non-executive director um, on the board of an NHS trust in Derbyshire. She's also the co-chair of the APNA NHS network. And if you listen to the episode, you'll hear all about APNA. She's also a trustee um, and she is a mum of four. So this conversation, um, Asma really unpacks for us how she balances and maintains her boundaries, how she's using her power and influence across her portfolio career to drive change for good. She also was just telling us very humbly at the end of our conversation when we had stopped recording um, that she's just been recognised as one of the most influential Muslims across Europe. Um, I think I believe it's by Equality X, which is absolutely fantastic. But in this conversation, we really dig into um, Asma's journey to, to how she's achieved this portfolio career, why she's a prominent member of the APNA NHS network, what the network is doing, both to support its members and also influence external policy across the NHS to drive change, more inclusion, to tackle discrimination and inequalities. She really talks about as well um, how you can move your journey and move the dial forward for yourself if you're interested in having a non-executive career. And for those of you who may not be aware of it, that you can have a busy day job and a senior NHS day job and still be a non-executive director as well. She talks about um, being ready and actually recognising those transferable skills you've got, but also the practical steps that she took to really help help her to be board ready for when she stepped in. It is another fantastic conversation and a big thank you to Asma because what she shared here, I know will help so many people who want to progress their leadership journey and lead inclusively and sharp as who they really are. Hi, Asma, it's so good to have you here, finally. I feel like we've been trying to land this for a while. So big welcome to you and welcome to Bravery in the Boardroom. Um, before we kick off, it'll be great for you to tell people who you are and a bit about what you do. Um, thank you for inviting me. Really pleased to be here. And I love listening to your Baby in the Boardroom podcast. I feel so empowered hearing people's stories of similarities, but also the nuances of each person they've interviewed. Um, I'm Asma Nafis. Um, I am a Deputy Customer Account Director at Arden and Gem CSU. Mm -hmm. I'm also a non-executive director with Derbyshire Community Health Services. Um, a trustee with a charity called Lithia Trust, who uh, support adults with learning disabilities, mm -hmm. um, and also also the co-chair of the APNA Network, which is a national NHS staff network of over 500 leaders from across the whole country, clinical and non-clinical. And uh, the other part of my the hats that I wear, I'm a, a very proud mum of four. <laughs> yes. Yes, maybe that would come at the first, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so for, our, for whilst we have a lot of listeners who work in healthcare or across the NHS, for those who don't, I'm going to rewind you back to your your first role, your main role. Um, just tell us a little bit more. What's the CSU? So people who don't know. So uh, CSU stands for Commissioning Support Unit. Um, they were uh, brought in in 2013 to provide services and support at scale into the NHS. So things like HR functions, analytical functions that are more efficiently done at scale were brought in. Um, we also do some of the traditional consultancy work that you might have KPMGs and your Deloitte's doing, CSUs, youth people within the NHS, mm -hmm. providing services for the NHS from the NHS. Okay, okay, okay. So I know I'm going to ask you a lot more about your NED role as well, because 
we have listeners who who most maybe aren't aware that you can have a full-time senior NHS job and also be a non-executive director so I do want to unpack that a little bit but is it fair to describe your what you have as a portfolio career would you describe it as that yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd say portfolio career. Some might say mad. <laughs> we all the different things that juggle. Yeah. But all of those areas complement each other. And so tell me a little bit more about your journey to how you've got to those roles, because that's something that we always like to understand. And I know you haven't had the traditional sort of linear route up into the NHS. So tell me more about that. So my, my career journey has been quite unconventional. I uh, I was one of those sad people at the age of 14. I knew that I wanted to be a solicitor. Mm. I did the A-levels that supported the degree, did my legal practice course and qualified as a solicitor. I thought I had my career plan mapped out. And then the recession of 2008-9 hit and I was made redundant. Mm. Um, and the NHS... Um, it was supposed to be a stopgap. I was sold a role that was contracting, which aligned with my legal background. It ended up being 90% analytics and I learned very quickly and created a bit of a niche for myself um, and then sort of developed. And I think five years into the NHS, I suddenly came to the conclusion that if I was staying, I needed to show my commitment to the NHS or if I was making a decision to return to the law, I needed to do that because time was passing. Um, so I then went on to take a master's in, in leadership by the NHS Leadership Academy to show my commitment to the NHS and develop that systemic thinking. Um, and then over time, I became known for kind of being good at that triangulation between contracting, analytics and finance, yes. which is rare because we, we we work in silos quite a bit, don't we, yeah. the NHS? Yeah, very much so. So in what you were saying there, <clears throat> listening to that, so an about turn almost is what brought you into the NHS, but then you took that opportunity to develop your skills and expertise to move forward. Um, was there anything else that helped you on that journey? I think a number of things. There's something about um, how you deal with ambiguities. Having a resilience to be able to reconfigure the plan mm -hmm. um, really helped. I'd say along the way, I also had allyship. So, uh, funny story, when I was offered my first um, assistant director role, mm -hmm. I turned it down. I turned it down because at the time I had three young children yes. and I used to work at eight, eight, eight to four in Coventry and have to be on the motorway at four to, to do the after school pickups. Yeah. Um, and so I thought there's no way that I can manage this because it's about expanding, going from head of BI to assistant director of contracting yes. and having both under my portfolio. And our chief exec at the time, an amazing lady called Juliet Hancocks came and took me aside and she said, what, what's your reservation? And I said, well, I've got young children. I, I can't be here doing meetings after four o'clock. And she she said, I'm a mum. She said, I like to drop my youngest off to school because the youngest going to secondary. Yeah. I tell them no meetings before 9.30. She said, it's acceptable for you to say no meetings after four o'clock. Yeah. And for me, that was quite pivotal because suddenly I wasn't apologetic about being a parent. I wasn't feeling like I needed to overcompensate in other ways. And it was a game changer for me. And that's some of what I like to extol now as a leader myself yeah. about levelling that playing field for working yes. mums, about... Um, making making a more inclusive environment for people to progress. Yeah, yeah, and that you felt safe to ask it or voice it when you were asked. I think yeah. um, such so two things that you shared there. One is about um, you wanting to progress, but that challenge of yeah. being the parent, isn't it, and how that might work for you. But also your chief exec reaching out saying, what is it? Because And why I point that out is because sometimes as leaders, we say, my door's always open, come and see me. 
but you had you had a fear so you maybe wouldn't have expressed it until she came out and asked isn't it Absolutely. what is it that may be preventing you from moving forward with this yeah. which is amazing which is amazing and that thing about we were just talking about before we pressed record didn't we about um i was saying about inclusive leadership and actually um we're both big champions in the edi space of wanting to see um leaders who look like us have the confidence to flourish and be given opportunity to flourish but we also i was also saying about one of the most important qualities is about being an inclusive leader. And when you hold that in leadership responsibility, understanding the needs of who you're looking after and trying to support them is so vital, isn't it? So I loved what you shared there. Thank you. So let me pick up on then talking about leadership. Um, if I asked you the question, how would you describe your leadership in three words? What would you say to me? So uh, values based. Um, my values and sense of justice and fairness and equality are very important to me and I like to make sure that in everything that I'm doing my conduct almost extols the values that I feel. Um, I'm also all about collaboration and empowerment so I like to empower those around me to lead alongside it's not just about everybody doing things in silos together we can achieve more yeah. um, and that collaboration piece in the NHS I don't think we do that enough so my background as a lawyer it's very rare that you would be drafting a document from, from scratch because we have precedence. In the NHS, we have 42 individuals doing similar roles in 42 ICSs trying to do pretty much the same thing. So I think creating those communities of practice for knowledge sharing mm -hmm. by way of conferences, by way of uh, shared spaces where you can interact and connecting people is really important. And I think that's, that's part of kind of progressing the NHS. Mm. So, you know, it's so true because how... How do you achieve the balance between having the local focus, isn't it? So you are trying, you know, really focusing in on your community's needs and how you meet them, but then also connecting back. So like you said, we're not trying to all reinvent the wheel on our own. Yeah. We're working out um, how we can do that together. There's a sweet spot in there somewhere, yeah, I'm sure. Because yeah. if 70% of the work is similar across the country, mm. then you've got more time for that 30% about nuancing for your local communities and engaging yes. with communities yeah. to build that in. Yeah, yeah, so true, so true. So tell me a little bit more about challenges. So heard a bit about um, how you progressed and how you pivoted, um, and a little little bit, tiny bit about where you are now, but it'd be really good to hear about on your journey, were there any challenges in getting to where you are now? I think, um, if I think of my my career journey, there's, there's the obvious challenge of trying to juggle parenthood and life outside of work alongside work. Mm -hmm. And if I look back at my the early part of my career journey, one of the big challenges was feeling like I needed to be the hardest working person in the room. Tell me more. And I feel quite sad about that, mm -hmm. reflecting on it now, because um, I was doing more than... I, I, and I don't know how much of this was about me and what I was projecting and how much of it was around the expectation and I imagine it's probably something in the middle mm -hmm. but I was you know coming back from work putting children to bed and then working into the night and working at twice the pace of those around me to almost prove that I was in this role and I was validly in this role and yeah. if I was to say one thing to me 10 years ago it'd be stop you mm -hmm. are enough and we don't do that do that enough do we to say mm -hmm. to someone who is working above and beyond what they need to stop it's fine. <laughs> um, I think the, the other stage is I'm quite analytical and structured in my approach. Mm -hmm. And because of that early experience with my planned career path, kind of having to reconfigure it, quite agile in approach. So um, there's been challenges along the way, but it's your ability to manage them and co constantly be growing and grabbing opportunities as they come along. Mm -hmm. So one of the, the challenges that I faced when I was 
you know, my sort of C-suite level within the operational day job. Yeah. And trying to get that first board role was around board experience, board exposure. Yes. So I became the trustee of a charity to yeah. gain some of that exposure. And then I learned that my preconceptions about what a trust Ned looks like are not actually the reality. Mm-hmm. So if anybody had asked me three, four years ago, I would have said former chief exec, recently retired, middle class, white male that would have been the prototype yeah, yeah, yeah. i had in mind of a ned yeah that's not the reality now so yes. what started off about looking at my career and what might help the progression led me into this ned space and i can honestly say i've really really enjoyed these times where that's kind of the shining light for me in my career because i feel like i'm making an impact and making a difference in many ways mm-hmm. um and it's really empowering to, to be in that space and what guided you to um, become a trustee? Was it advice from someone who's, who said that something you should do or was that your own decision? I, um, I was approached cold on LinkedIn by okay. a recruiter. I hadn't considered it before. It mm-hmm. wasn't because I thought it's something you do at the end of your career. Yeah, yeah. And I was approached and had a conversation. And then once I was appointed as trustee, I realised how you can bring in the parallels of operational roles mm-hmm. and help them in supporting the board. So the uh, charity that I work with, I, I did some mentoring with the chief executive when she came back from maternity leave after her first child. Yes. And we were having a conversation and, and you know, I said to her, like, sometimes I wonder whether I'm hitting the mark. It was a, it was a very open, vulnerable conversation mm. in the way that I am at board. And she said, as operational leaders, we love it when you speak because you reflect our voice. Yes. And I think that's a bit that you miss having an operational role within an organization or an operational day job. And then holding a NED means that you have insights into some mm. of the areas mm. that others who just sit on the board or have very senior roles or are external won't have. Yeah. So let me ask the big question then about, you. I mean, you touched on your mum of four and you mentioned about, um, you know, at the time when you were looking to step up and you had three young children. So, I mean, I want, I want to ask it. How do you juggle it? You know, how do you manage that in terms of, is that a challenge for you or have you got a structure and approach that really works for you that listeners might want to learn from? So I've now got, I now have four young children. Mm. <laughs> Three at, the, at a time when I'm starting off on that mm. journey. I think there's something about, um, you know, we make space and time for the things that are important to us. Yeah. And it's keeping the boundaries between the working world and doing enough so that you can achieve what you want to within your career mm-hmm. and the boundaries of what you want from your personal life, from your family life. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a fine tightrope, if I'm mm-hmm. honest. Mm-hmm. And some weeks I feel like I'm winning, other weeks I feel like I'm failing and mm-hmm. probably all doing fine and just need to turn to the one of the, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Um, there's some tips and tricks that I've taken along the way. So for me, um, this hybrid working has meant that I save six hours a week on commuting time from Coventry at the time. And that six hours a week means that I'm now able to do the NED role to to commit some time to that. Um, Outside of that, it's been very organized and very structured. So ring fencing pockets of time to do the things that are important Mm -hmm. and making sure that you also have time to do some of the meeting friends and, and networking and social building and the things that nourish the soul it's yes a, it's a very fine balance my uh, my cheat for the uh women out there is i have an amazing lady who cooks curries for me three days a week mm-hmm. and so it takes burden off me which means that time can be spent relaxing with the children that i might otherwise be in the kitchen so yeah. i'd say yeah find the cheats <laughs> yeah. find the cheats along the way that help you make time for the things that are important yeah I, I really i really hear that i have three children myself and um having transitioned career as well 
um, there's a podcast I listen to and yeah so and I think she she talks about that um, just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should um, and I think it's a message to working parents isn't it because so whoever's picking up parent parenting or um, domestic responsibilities about how you can make that balance work so thank you for sharing that because I think it, you know, people will admire it, but then it's like, well, how? What, what are those tips and tricks that you use that help you? Yeah. My, so, I, oh, sorry. <laughs> my my trust chair, we have our one-to-one. She, she, she thinks that I've got this elasticity of time because she can't understand how I juggle the things that I do. But it's, it's knowing what is okay at 90% and not mm-hmm. having to kind of push yourself on every single point and needing perfection in all facets of your life. Really connects back to what you were saying earlier about the message you would give to your your younger self 10 years ago, isn't it? About you are enough and you're doing enough. Um, Really hear that loud and clear. Thank you for sharing that. So let's come on to, so taking the trustee role, this is how it came up for you. You've gone into that. It's really, it sounds like it's really, it really gave you some insights into um, what I heard you share there is um, the value that you already have that you can add and bring into the boardroom and dispelling I think is the word I want to use. It dispelled some of the preconceptions you had about what you might need. Um, And I teased that out because I know so many people will be thinking, I've got to have X, Y, and Z, or they've come across a recruiter who's been very rigid in that, as you say. But I I really heard you as well, as a move, what you're saying. Now, if we look at the profile of NEDs, non-execs across the um, the NHS now, it's changing. The profile is changing. So tell me a little bit more about now you're in the boardroom. So in the boardroom as a NED at Derbyshire Community Trust. Um, and also I want to touch on your role as co-chair of APNA. So both are very senior, um, high profile roles. How are you using that power and influence to, to help tackle um, inequalities and discrimination? So I think when it comes to um, tackling inequalities and discrimination, there's almost two broad mechanisms there's the banging the drum really loud the disruptors and then there's the influencers who will um who will have some of those conversations and influence from within and i think you need both cohorts you need the Mm. people making the noise to Mm. open the door for the conversation and then having the platform and the forums to be able to have some of the deeper discussions Mm -hmm. and i think i fall into the latter category Mm -hmm. um so for me it's about considering every conversation that we're having as influencing and nudging closer to a better understanding whether it comes to diversity issues the intersectionality of you know working parents of um someone having an operational role and a non-exec director role all of the different facets that make me i enjoy having conversations about them because it it um it takes us further forward in our knowledge and i love conversations because i learn a lot more and it broadens my thinking Mm -hmm. for example we had a board development day around ed and i and we had the lead of our veteran network come along. That was a blind spot for me. Mm-hmm. And I really, really enjoyed that forum to be able to learn a little bit more. So I think the way that I influence is by having conversations, by nudging a little bit, um, by using APNA to influence where there's big issues that are really important to our members, being able yeah. to highlight them. And also in the way that I project myself externally and the platforms that I'm on, not just at board level or within the organizations I work mm-hmm. in, but broader than that. Mm-hmm. I, I get told a lot that the visibility of someone like me sitting in the roles that I do empowers those who are in the pipeline for senior leadership yes. to think I could achieve that because there's someone there who looks like me. And I think we almost have this responsibility for all of us, don't we, mm. to empower that future generation in the pipeline of talent. For sure, for sure. So powerful what you shared there. And I think 
um, we were talking, weren't we, before about representation by sight is important, but we also, what we heard there about your values-led leadership and you describe yourself as a values-led leader. It's not just um, you, what you look like and how you're showing up. It's also about how you're leading, isn't it? And how you're, like you said, using your influence to drive change in some of those important spaces. So really hearing that, and I think that's such an important message. Did it make a difference for you? Because I know at Derbyshire Community, you have got a more diverse board. Did that make a difference for you in stepping into the NED role? Um, I think Derbyshire, Derbyshire community were um, unique in their approach when they thought to recruit, because um, I came into Derbyshire as an associate NED, mm -hmm. and they wanted to support those wanting to come into the NED space initially, and then I, I was promoted earlier this year. Um, Derbyshire actively reached out to a number of individuals that they had seen on other panels, um, who they they were impressed by, I thought would be a good fit, and so they reached out to me, and I was part of a cohort of eight um, individuals who who were asked to apply for roles, and then we went through the the stringent interview process. I yeah. think our chair at the time, Prem Singh, who's now since retired, mm -hmm. he was a very inclusive leader, mm -hmm. and his approach about being proactive in bringing a more diverse cohort of cohort of Neds was was really important. Our new chair, Julie, is absolutely amazing as well. She's very good at um, asking some of the difficult conversations and challenging ourselves about whether we are projecting and extolling the values as a board that we should be. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. So one of the other things that in having these conversations, so throughout the podcast series, throughout the webinars that we've had, we were at APNA conference with you in September. I'm really listening carefully to some of the key themes that are coming through and inclusive, supportive senior leaders comes through time and time again. And when we see and hear the organizations, we had um, Gabby Otimo yet on here last time, and she was talking about the leadership of her trust. Um, she's at another trust in the Midlands and just sharing about when you have inclusive, supportive senior leaders and leaders throughout the organization, what that instills and encourages and also what that calls out in terms of this is this is how we are leading here and this is how we're leading our people and this is how we're not doing it. And it doesn't mean that it's a perfect world because I'm not hearing those organizations say, we've got it cracked, but you absolutely can see that difference. Yeah. So if someone was asking you that question, kind of what I asked, but if I probed it a bit deeper and said, you know, what difference does a diverse board make? What would you say to that? If I if I take a very Ned-like approach. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so what are the, the main issues for uh, across the NHS? So activity, needing to deliver more patient care, um, higher acuity of care needs for patients' ageing population, mm -hmm. finance, the financial constraints and workforce. So we, we don't have a whole pipeline of talent coming through the ranks so we have retirement and leavers. So in terms of um, how we can deliver um, improved patient care and deliver more activity than we have before, um, it's about that enhanced decision-making and a deeper connection with your local community so that you're serving the population in an appropriate way so that each interaction with healthcare is efficient in its processes. Mm -hmm. And similarly, if we, if we talk about workforce, so a board that reflects your workforce mm -hmm. will help promote recruitment, retention, training, awareness of the needs of diverse communities when they can work in your organisation. And, you know, on the financial side, so we know diversity breeds innovation and innovation mm -hmm. is what's needed in the NHS. Mm -hmm. And by diversity, I don't just mean the protected characteristics, mm -hmm. but having digital champions on your board, having um, working parents on the board who, you know, who can talk about the flexibility. There's so many facets when it comes to diversity on, bo on board 
and how we can all empower each other to think in a slightly different way based on the unique perspective that we each bring. Yeah, I really hear that. I really hear that. I mean, the fact of the matter is the working age population is more diverse than ever. Um, so at, as a board, if you are static, if you are not paying attention to that, you mentioned the other end about, you know, one end is about the working age population as a whole. Then if you boil that down to the workforce challenges that organisations are facing, I think absolutely about um, you will not attract that talent. Yeah. So if, you know, the diverse talent that's out there by all protected characteristics, people are looking you up. People are looking you up to see what are you doing around EDI, but also are you doing what you say you're doing? You're doing? You know, what's really going on? What do people say who work here about what it's like? Can I show up as my true self? Can I be a disruptor, isn't it? Can I bring that innovation? Have you got space for me? People are really choosing and it is an employee's market at the moment, isn't it? You can choose where you want to go. So absolutely hearing you about there was a, there's a comp, that thing, that line that Gabby gave us about whose voice is not in the room. I think it's so powerful when she said that, you know, whose voice is not in the room when we are thinking and looking ahead and looking at what you want to do. Like you said, looking, how are we trying to serve and reach our communities? Whose voice isn't here? And if you've got diversity in your leadership, you, you have more chance of hearing the voices and enabling the voices to come through from different spaces. So true. Thank you for sharing that. So... Coming to this question about underrepresentation, because that's some kind of the theme that's been following through in our conversation. You mentioned that you were an associate NED before you became a NED and um, heard a long conversation about, discussion about it yesterday on the webinar that we hosted. People really want to understand more about the associate NED roles and it was really good to unpack it. But what advice would you give to other aspiring non-executives from underrepresented groups? So the, the first one is apply now. We really need you. You know, that, that mental block that you have, am I ready for it? Have I got yeah. the right experience? Apply now. Um, some of the practical steps. So I think research and truly try and understand the NHS, if you're from outside the NHS. Yeah. Um, but also um, the role of a board, the governance of risk assessment. And you'll find that a lot of, a lot of the skill set that's needed to sit on a board as a non-exec director, mm -hmm. you have that and you practice that in, in your operational day role. You mm -hmm. just don't realize those transferable skills. Mm -hmm. I think there's also something about um, selecting an organization whose values align with yours. Um, so when I think of my journey and I, I'd applied to a number of trusts and I was very selective about organizations that mm -hmm. I had a connection to mm -hmm. um, and whose values aligned with mine. Think, do your research into the organization and yeah. um, reach out to people who are in the NED space to say, I'm really interested. Please, please talk to me about what it's like being a NED, what experience I could gain to help me on the journey. So becoming a school governor or the trustee on a charity is a good stepping stone to understand yeah. how a board works and that governance process. Um, and I think also reach out to some of the staff networks that can support you on your journey. So I know that um, within the Outplay NHS Network, we've helped 42 um, executive and non-executive um, <coughs> get into post by providing interview coaching, by providing a bit of support on CVs, um, supporting how to frame questions and, mm. and responses mm. to that. And I think being vocal about your aspirations will mean that people will reach out to you and want to talk to you and help you. I'd say the biggest learning for me on the on the journey, particularly in the last three years, has been be vocal about your aspirations. Mm -hmm. There'll be a lot of people who do want to help you. 
Um, and, and it was tough for me as a South Asian person. Our culture is very much be humble, hide what you're doing, yeah. um, you know, kind of quietly, quietly keep working, work as hard as you can and, and the reward will come at the end. But I think talking about aspirations means that um, we are in the right forums, having the right conversations that will then empower us to apply for these roles. Um, in relation to what you just mentioned about APNA, um, I want to touch on APNA a bit more, but can I pick up on that point? So you were saying there about APNA supported 42 people to progress into senior leadership roles from that real practical support. Um, there is something, there's a, there's a term I use about being in a state of readiness. So some of what you've shared there is about that, have the confidence, um, the practical support that you can have. Is there anything else you'd say to um, our audience today about that, that inner confidence to feel ready? I think the, the inner confidence is almost, it's a difficult one because I imagine that imposter syndrome, it strikes me quite mm -hmm. often mm -hmm. and it, it sits within, within all of us. But by having some of those conversations with people who can reinforce and help you see <laughs> who yeah. you are and what you can deliver yeah. and that, that almost allyship of building up your confidence really helps. I think also um, it's easy to think of senior leadership as something that happens over there by very yeah. important people who are ready in the full package. Yeah. As I've got progressed in my career, what I've realized is everybody's learning on the journey, each step of the way, everybody's learning. So you're not inferior, you don't have a, a, a huge number of steps to climb. It's about kind of really looking within at the skill set that you have, about the unique value that you bring as an individual and the intersectionality of your experiences yeah. and how you will then add value to the board. So if I, if I think of myself, I know that my first year as an associate in ed, I would, um, I preferred to be in the chat box yeah. than speaking. And I almost had this feeling of I'm an operational person and have I got the authority to speak here? Mm -hmm. And over time, confidence grew because I realized that the things that I was thinking but not articulating was exactly what was being discussed. Yes. And it's easy to kind of fall into that, am I good enough? Yeah. Yes, you are. No. Um, so almost think of, think of your own skill set and know that whatever stage you're at, you are good enough and you have got a lot of value to add. Such helpful advice, really, really helpful advice. Thank you so much for unpacking that. Because as I said, we, we received so many questions about that and I think demystifying the associate Ned role. I know that sometimes there's a feeling that it's not as um, um, important or as powerful. And I think we really, I will share, I mean, I'll, I'll make sure we share the link to the session we had yesterday. Cause I think there's what you've shared here is really great. And there were some other great points shared there as well that for anyone listening who really is think considering a non-executive um, director role, a career or the next step in their progression, so much practical insights that have been shared. So thank you so much for unpacking that. So let's come back to APNA. You know, um, I'm a big, a big supporter of APNA. Um, my reasons why is because I see the, I really believe in the power of network and movements, um, the size of APNA and who you've brought together. But I also heard in, in getting to know you and getting to know the team, I really heard the challenge you were giving yourselves as well about, okay, we're here, we're here in numbers, but now what? You know, I really heard that from you and that, you know, your, your theme of going beyond the conversation. I've, I've been there, I've been in the space with you when I've heard you challenging each other about how are we going beyond the conversation? Where are we taking our members now? What are we asking ourselves 
as a membership to move forward on. I, re I really heard that. So it would be great to hear more from you about number one, where people can find out more because as much as you've got large numbers, I know there's still people who don't know about APNA, but what would you want to um, kind of our listeners to know about the network? So for us as an APNA executive, the legacy and impact are really important to us. Mm. So we ran for a number of years as a WhatsApp-based group for South Asian leaders within the NHS, providing mutual support, providing that space to share good practice and talk about some of the issues that we're all facing. Mm -hmm. And over the preceding two years, we've worked on what is it that we want to be known about externally. So we've had the influence and impact internally for our members have supported them. What do we want to be known for externally? Yeah. And how can we have a tangible impact that takes us forward? Um, so we had our last conference in September, mm. which was a huge success. We had Julian Hartley, Chris Hopson, some very senior leaders who are vested into UPNAS vision, mm -hmm. which is focused around um, partnership working and influencing policy and tackling health inequalities and workforce inequalities and, and bringing in digital intervention and the intersectionality of how you can support South Asian communities and celebrating everything that we achieve. And, mm -hmm. and I'll come on to later on a bit of a, a plug. We've got an event on the 8th of December at the House mm -hmm. of Commons mm -hmm. to um, celebrate South Asian pioneers. We'd, we'd love to have you come and join us. Oh, tonight. wow. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> um, so one of the things that came out of our conference recently um, was at Dragon's Den. So we mm -hmm. asked people to come up with innovative ideas, mm -hmm. both digital and non-digital, and the top three, we will be pitching them to senior leaders within the NHS to help progress. Similarly, uh, one of the Dragon's Den ideas that we have taken forward is around diabetes mm -hmm. um, and a programme will work to tackle diabetes. So we've got 500 people, clinical, non-clinical, across the whole country. If we all did the same thing yes. for diabetes care to improve, think of the impact that that could have. Yeah. I think that's what we've been working on now, how that ripple effect of having lots of people doing that small incremental growth can have a big impact. Um, and that, what's really important to me as co-chair of APNA is leaving a legacy so that some of the experiences that our members have had, that I might have had in my NHS career, my children won't have that, and future generations won't deal with some of the same barriers that we have. Yeah, yeah, really hear, really hear that. And <clears throat> if you haven't been to an APNA event before, it's so, it's warm, it's welcoming, it's interesting, it's challenging, it's insightful, but the energy, you know, the, the energy, I hear everybody say the same thing. The energy is amazing, but also the challenge to each other. That's what I really like, you know, when, when, we, um, when we did the Bravery in the Boardroom session, both when we did the seminar with a smaller group and the first year, and then being, you know, given a, a, a prime time slot on the main agenda, um, I, I like the challenge of the questions. It wasn't the same old, same old questions. It was that actually, we know this, we're hearing this. What about this? You know, and I really appreciate that push. Let's push the dial. We know you're our leaders. How can you help us? Or you're there in the boardroom. What is it you can really help us to understand differently? Or what is, what's that nugget that's gonna, that might unlock it for me? And I, I always speak about those, those keynotes and those discussions and some of the panels that you had. Um, they're like online, they're like a, a one hour mentoring session in terms of what you hear from your guests and what they're sharing. So, you know, if, any, if anyone hasn't been to an APNA event before, I'll plug for you actually, <laughs> because um, you learn so much, but it's a wonderful, warm welcome. And actually there's power. And I know um, one of our panel guests who we had, Bimal Patel, who's the deputy CEO at North Middlesex Hospital, he hadn't heard of APNA. Um, he'd heard of it vaguely, but he didn't really know in detail what the network was about and he just said wow when he you know when he's up there on the stage in the room he said wow he said you know 
I will be here next year and every year I'm in, you know? So I think using the platform to share it, but not just because it's the numbers, it's actually the energy, the support, the challenge that you receive from both your network members and your events. I think it's amazing and it's a great, um, thank you for sharing a little bit more of the story as well of how it started from a WhatsApp group because um, here one of my main passions is about encouraging people that we all, there's something we can all do to help turn the dial. And I think, you know, hearing that someone, you know, two or three people started a WhatsApp group and that's where it grew. And it might have taken a bit of time to flip it into a more formalized network, but actually now you're doing that, you're really trying to use the levers that you have in the senior leadership team to build the network out and to have that external influence. It really shows that from that seed. Um, the last thing I would say about also, which I love, is about your connection to charity. Yeah. You know, the connection that whenever you come to an APNA event, there is always a charitable cause. There is always, you always talk about it. You're very clear about, you know, this is what we're raising funds for today. We ask you to commit to that. And I love that connection as well, that that, that isn't forgotten. Yeah. We're all here to make a difference. So um, really powerful. We'll make sure in the show notes that we put the links where people can find out more as well. So before we finish up, Back to you. <laughs> you mentioned um, when we were speaking earlier about um, being a mum, how it's busy, some of your tips and tricks, and you spoke about being really boundaried and protected times. But I always like to ask our leaders here before you go, please share with us what is it you do to sort of look after your well-being? As I said earlier, I think that it's a very fine balance about making the time to look after yourself. For me, um, I do Muay Thai um, martial arts. Um, so for those of us who've been on a team's meeting with me where I've not managed to blur the background, <laughs> a big uh, punch bag in the background. Yeah. And it really helps me kind of relax and wind down. And I do some of my best thinking there. I think um, I also try as much as possible, particularly in this hybrid working world, to have walking meetings. If a call mm. can be done on the mobile, I will walk around the block. Um, getting that fresh air in, looking after yourself, yeah. a balance with everything that you do. Um, Self-care wise, I make sure that I do some of the fun things with the kids like yeah. going to the park which you know you can get busy with life and mm -hmm. then not make time for some of the small moments that the kids will remember and recognize um i love a cheeky spa day and i'm <laughs> <laughs> um and pre-covid i used to try at least twice a year i'd book an annual leave day when the children are in school and yeah. go have, have a spa day i'm going this weekend actually nice so i think finding that time to do the things that you enjoy um that help you relax and switch off because yeah. Society at the moment and the pace of life means mm. that you always feel guilty when you're not doing anything and you're relaxing. I am a massive Bollywood buff. Yeah. Um, and Bollywood, for those who don't know, we have three-hour real theatrical musical films. Mm -hmm. It's the only time where I'll sit down and just sit and watch yeah. and be fully present. Whereas um, in other circumstances, you get up midway through, you get a load of laundry on, yeah. you get the dishes. There's yeah. always something else that you're doing. Mm -hmm. So I find that really helps me to wind down and switch off. Um, and the other side is just being around the kids, you know, kind of mm -hmm. doing some of the thilly, silly things that they really enjoy. So my five-year-old is absolutely obsessed with princesses and lip gloss. <laughs> She's too young as a five-year-old, but kind of engaging in some of the things that she enjoys. Yes. Helps me relax and wind down. Yeah. Oh, do you know, it's so wonderful to hear that and to hear you promoting and advocating about self-care, you know, about having fun time, having downtime. And um, we heard so much about your portfolio career and how busy it is, you know, but to also hear actually the reason why you're able to do that 
And I say to do that with joy, because, you know, getting to know you, you're a jo very joyful person. Actually, you know, really um, promoting that self-care and reminding us all as leaders, um, as leaders at any level, you know, as working parents, to just try and protect a little bit of time for yourself and how important that is. Um, thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I, there's just one thing I'd, I'd almost add, and it is, so I was almost forced to be more mindful of self-care because mm -hmm. um, last year I was diagnosed with long COVID and the symptoms were fatigue and brain fog yeah. um, and respiratory issues. And it forced me to reflect on what's really important, mm -hmm. what's important in life and making time for the things that you enjoy. And part of that reset process, um, I was one of those people who very rarely took annual leave time in, in big chunks. So I took a chunk of time off over the summer and I took my kids over to Kashmir. So we were in the, the mountain of Kashmir, yeah. living a very off-grid life for, yeah. for four weeks. And it helped reset and re kind of almost makes you detox and think of the really important things mm -hmm. and what you're going to do differently when you come back. So now I will not allow myself to get back into that frame of mind where at seven o'clock at night, you're still thinking about work or you're quickly checking a work email. I think I was forced with the the long COVID yeah. to reflect on what I need to do differently for my own health and well-being, mm. and that's resulted in something more positive coming out of it. But I'd say for our listeners, don't wait for for yeah. a triggering factor. Yeah. Almost make the change now. Mm -hmm. But you know what? Thank you so much because that's a that's a really powerful message, there, isn't it? That um, I hope you're feeling. Hope you are feeling better. Um, but it's a really powerful message that sometimes we do wait, don't we, until we've hit a wall or that we are really experiencing that burnout or for yourself, you know, an illness, a long-term illness comes up. So understanding that that might have been a bit of a trigger for you as well, but just loved hearing how you are balancing and boundaries. I think that's the words that come to mind for me and what you shared. I think I heard here about you are driving change on different levels, you know, really showing up as the leader that you are, but also, as you said, just just commanding almost that balance and boundaries and taking ownership to ensure that happens for you. So you are the best you can be in how you're leading across organizations and the network, but I'm also hearing the best you can be in terms of being with your family and being the mum that you want to be. So I knew this was gonna be a great conversation. I mean, it has been, so thank you so much for joining us today, Asma. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. <laughs>